I want to invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 12. As we read of two incidents that took place one Sabbath and Jesus' corresponding response to the response of the Pharisees and what they tell us about the king of the kingdom. Matthew the Apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes thus. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage. Jesus, we thank you for showing us how the scriptures ought to be read and how they point to you and how you are indeed Lord, even of the Sabbath. We ask 
that in this time of reflection upon your word that we would turn to you because indeed your yoke is easy and your burden is light. For Christ's sake we pray it. Amen. All right, brothers and sisters, in this passage, we are following on the heels of what was said before, or I should say three weeks ago before I left for General Assembly, we concluded looking at chapter 11, and chapter 11 concludes with that wondrous invitation of our Lord to come to him. He opens wide his arms and offers the invitation to come to him all who labor and are heavy laden to find rest. And he invites us to take upon him his yoke, for his burden is easy and light. And so what happens here is directly following on the heels of that. That's why verse 1 of chapter 12 begins at that time. It's connecting what came before and what you implicitly get to see on display in these first 14 verses especially is a comparison of the yoke of Christ with the yoke of the Pharisees. And one of the things we see here is how the scriptures are understood, how they are read, how they are applied and what that means for the burdens we have and how we can relate rightly to God. The first 14 verses are about Sabbath rules and regulations. And the Pharisees understood the principle that works of necessity and mercy could, could occur on the Sabbath. Their bar, however, was so insanely high as to be onerous. They, they said you could heal or perform some sort of medical care on, on the Sabbath, but only if it was a life-threatening situation. So anything under life-threatening was outlawed. In the same way, you're not to work on the Sabbath. So a failure to plan on your part does not constitute a crisis. So walking through the fields hungry, that's tough luck for you. You should have thought better. How do you approach the written code? There's this overly lawyerly, punctilious manner of absolutism that we are tempted to every time we see a legal code. And we take it to the nth degree and say, this is the standard. Indeed, is it not possible that if we're going to say that works, that, that the general norm is no work on the Sabbath and only works of necessity are required? Well, who gets to decide what's necessary? Why would it be less than life-threatening? There's a way to read and apply a code that becomes nothing more than a shackle and a burden and, in fact, a form of cruelty. But in these verses here, we see our Lord's understanding of Scripture and the priorities of Scripture providing for us the lens by which we ought to understand the regulations of Scripture 
And this illustrates what he means when he tells us that his burden is light. So to begin, we see this section, verses 1 through 8. And the disciples of Jesus are going through a field on the Sabbath, and they start plucking grain. Now understand that property rights in in the Old Covenant were different than what we would consider. The law of God specifically authorizes people to walk through the field, and if you're hungry, you're you're welcome to pluck grain from, from someone's field. You just can't take it, accumulate it, and go back and prepare a meal with it, because that would be stealing. But being hungry as you walk through a field and you take a, gra- a head of corn, uh, that's totally acceptable within the parameters of God's law. Deuteronomy 23 specifies that. But the Pharisees object to the fact that these disciples are walking through a field doing this on the Lord's day. They're just plucking grain. What's the big deal, right? Uh, Understand, though, that the Pharisees, in view of the exile, had come back and the four key pillars of Judaism were circumcision, the dietary code, the Sabbath, and holiness. The Sabbath was absolutely non-negotiable. They put up such a rigid wall around it that you could only walk 1,100 steps on the Lord, on the Sabbath. If you so much as spit on the ground, you were guilty of violating the law. And what's more, if you spit on the ground and it happened to moisten a seed, you were guilty of, of sowing. It's crazy. It's crazy. And they did this because they, in the pretense of wanting to protect the law, they added their own law that became the law. It would be as if the the state on a state road says the, the, the speed limit is 55 miles an hour. And then the local police department, because they're the ones enforcing the code, just like the Pharisees were the ones enforcing the code, uh, we, we want to be so careful that no one violates the, the 50 miles an hour speed limit law, we're, we're going to fine you if you go more than 40. So what's the speed limit? 40, if you want, don't want to. This is why Jesus so consistently condemns the Pharisees for taking their traditions and making them the law, equated to the law of God. Their, their view of the Sabbath was such that it took no, it, into, into, it didn't take into account at all any of the hermeneutics of the Old Testament for how things should be applied. And, and we understand that the law of God was given to us for our good and the Sabbath especially was given to us for our good. So Jesus himself says, hey, have you not read? And he does this twice in verse 3 and in verse 5. Have you not read? Two examples. Have you not read? And of course the Pharisees had read. But when Jesus says, have you not read, we should understand that he's implying that even though their eyes passed over those words in their scriptures, they had not rightly interpreted. They had not rightly 
understood. That's what he's saying. And so what we're getting ready to be introduced to is that there's a hermeneutic within Scripture that, in, that commands us to interpret Scripture along its own rules if we are to interpret Scripture rightly at all. And so to understand what, what could happen on the Sabbath, he first points to the example of, of David. David was hungry in 1 Samuel 21. If you know what happened just before in chapter 20, David had received conclusive evidence that Saul was bent to kill him. And Jonathan and he had had that tearful parting, and now David is running for his life. And he has a few folks with him. And in, verse, and in chapter 21, he, he comes to the town of Nob, and the priests there have no food for him except for the showbread, which is only for the priests. But they give it to David. And if you're a punctilious, lawyerly, and I don't mean lawyer in the good sense, Pharisaic interpreter of scripture, you would say they're sinners. They violated the law of God. But David was the Lord's anointed. He was the one whom the Lord had anointed to lead and bless his people. And so the showbread, which was for God, could rightly be used to nourish and strengthen the one the Lord had appointed to the people to lead and guide them. That's the logic of Jesus here. In, in the same way, since David was the Lord's anointed and it was okay to take what was only for God and to give it to support and nourish him. Jesus is God's anointed. And so if the scriptures indicate that it was okay for David and his men to be sustained by food that was off limits to any but priests, how much more so would, is it okay for food to be used to nourish and sustain Jesus and his men? Because he is the Lord's anointed. The second thing is he points them to the ministry of the priests and their ministry on the Sabbath. And he uses, he uses a little hyperbole because with their absolutistic rules about the Sabbath, even the priests by their ministry are profaning the Sabbath. You gotta understand there's a little twinkle in his eye. Jesus is not saying they're profaning the Sabbath. That's why he says they're guiltless. But by their standard of what kind of actions and activities are acceptable, it would appear that these guys are profaning the Sabbath, but yet they're guiltless. So you see the priority of worship on the Lord's Day, and that work done in support of worship is, is not guilt-inducing work. But Jesus concludes, there's someone, something greater than the temple is here. So if the ministry of priests in support of the ministry of the temple are acceptable. And if now there's someone greater than the temple here, how much more acceptable is it to support the ministry of the one who's greater than the temple? In both cases, the, the argument is from lesser to greater. 
if it's okay to support the Lord's anointed in the small sense, how much more in the big sense? And the temple, now there's something greater than the temple, how much more? And how is Jesus greater than the temple? How? What was the temple? The temple was the place that represented God's presence. It was the place that you had to go to make atonement for sins. Sacrifice had to be made there. So the temple was a big deal. But in Christ, you don't just have the representation of God's presence. You have God's presence. So much so that in, that in John chapter 14, he, he will declare that whoever has seen him has seen the Father. And, and Jesus is the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. So whatever ministry the temple had and whatever it represented, Jesus was it in spades. So if it's okay for the priests to serve the temple, it's okay for my disciples to work with me because he, the Son of Man, is the Lord of the Sabbath. And this is a bold assertion, brothers and sisters. Remember that the self-designation Son of Man is Jesus' favorite description for himself. And it harkens from Daniel chapter 7 where Daniel is given this vision of, of heaven and there's the Ancient of Days sitting on the throne and, and the Son of Man, someone who looks like a human, comes before and is given dominion over all the kingdoms of the earth. And so Jesus takes that for himself because he, he is the Son of Man, the one to whom all dominion is given. And that dominion in, extends over the Sabbath. So what Jesus is here saying is that he, as Lord of the Sabbath, he has the prerogative to say what is and is not acceptable on the Sabbath. That's what he's saying. That your rabbinical traditions are not determinative. Your rabbinical traditions are not authoritative. I am. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the one who provides the grid through which we understand what the scriptures are teaching. And so when Jesus orients our mind and our spirits to understand things from this gracious perspective, we are then to adopt it as proper. So indeed, from these first eight verses, we understand that there's principles from scripture that we need to apply, that the priority is on Mercy, not sacrifice. When, when Matthew cites Hebrew, Hosea 6, 6, he's reminding us that what the sacrifices are and what the Sabbath day sacrifices were for was to make up for having failed to be faithful. It's, but it's always been the contingency. The Lord would prefer you to be faithful and merciful, to, character, to reflect his character, to be characterized by loving kindness. He would rather that than that you have to make sacrifice for your failure to be that. Now, of course, we all fail, and so the sacrifices were necessary. But the preference and the priority was always on a wholehearted devotion to God and our fellow man 
that reflected itself in merciful disposition. That's the priority. And Jesus sets us aright because now they're gonna try to set him up. And in verses nine to 14, we see something that's scandalous. We see an over-the-top hard-heartedness. In chapter 12, verse 9, it says that he entered their synagogue. Once again, the, Matthew is pointing out that by the time he had written this, there was a definitive difference between the faith of Christ and where and how worship ought to take place and the faith of the Jews. By the time Matthew wrote this, okay, he doesn't just enter the synagogue, he enters their synagogue. That's a spatial relational differentiation. Okay? He enters their synagogue and there's a man there with a withered hand. And this man is not there by accident. He is there because they are trying to set him up. And it's incredible, is it not, that they ask him if it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath. They had an answer in their mind. And the answer is no, it's not. Unless death is going to happen, in which case you could, you could do some uh, you know, medical care on, in that case. But they want to set him up. This whole thing is they don't care about this guy or his problem at all. And all they care about is trying to get Jesus. And he says to them, if you have a sheep and it falls into a pit, are, are you going to help it out? Of course they will. And then he makes a statement. How much more valuable is this man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. They understood that even on the Sabbath, if an animal fell into a ditch, you had to get it out. They understood that. Their concern was to use the law to oppress people. And so they would show mercy and compassion to an animal, but keep people firmly under their thumb. And, and right here in verse 12, you have our Lord's verdict towards a view that has, I would say, prospered and proliferated even in our day. There's, there's a great many people who would tell you, who, who, who events give evidence to a prioritization to animals over people. And that's perverse. People matter more than animals. Okay? That's from Jesus. People matter more than animals. And if it's okay to help an animal, how much more to help a person? And, and what's incredible is this. What does Jesus do to heal this man? Does he perform some healing ritual? Does he, do, does he perform a medical exam? And does, does he, what does he do? He just speaks. Stretch out your hand. And you know what's ridiculous about the Pharisees? Their law does not forbid speaking on the Sabbath. But that's all that Jesus does. They did not outlaw human movement. So when Jesus says, stretch out your arm, moving my arm, that's not a violation of the Sabbath. You could walk 1,100 steps. A whole lot of motions are involved in walking 1,100 steps. 
but they're filled with rage. Rage. That he would dare defy them. Even though by their own standard, he had done nothing wrong. Brothers and sisters, this moment right here in verse 14 is the moment that Matthew, Mark, and Luke point that this is where the Pharisees made their definitive, declarative decision to hate Jesus and to devote their energies to destroying him. And from this point on, they're just looking for a, an opportune time and moment. Okay? This is where you see the animus of man. That they are so bound up in asserting their dominance, oppressing and keeping the, the little man down, that, that a guy who comes along and, and doesn't even by the mere mechanics of his word and deed, violate their law. Nonetheless, he healed. And you can't do that. Their hard-heartedness is despicable. But right there, we, we should have a warning light go off in our own hearts. Their anger and their rage at this is, is, is irrational. It's it's wicked. How? When you see rage welling up within you, right there, you need to do a gut check. You need to stop. What's going on? Pe people rail the most vitriolic when you're attacking their idols. We are profoundly defensive of our gods. And they weren't worshiping the one true God. They were worshiping power and control over people. And Jesus was a threat. And so, Jesus shows us that there's the way of the Pharisees that will keep you ground into the dust. And there's his way which understands that the law is to guide our behavior, yes, but it's to be interpreted and there's a strand of mercy and graciousness that goes through it because he is merciful and gracious. And this is what the Lord wants. And so in the final verses, 15 to 21, we see Jesus as a man understand that they're plotting his demise. They, it says Jesus, aware of this, and the aware of this is that they want to destroy him. So he leaves. He does what any of us are going to do. If someone's out to get us, we're going we're to move on. <laughs> I mean, you don't stick around, right? Jesus moves. And many followed him, and he healed them, and he told them not to make him known, and this was all to fulfill what Isaiah had said in Isaiah 42. And this quotation here in verses 18 to 21 is the longest quotation from the Old Testament in Matthew. A little trivia. Twice these verses proclaim the good news going to the Gentiles. 
Matthew has taken great pains from the beginning of his book that even though this is a Jewish gospel, nonetheless, he wants his readers to understand that the Messiah was for the whole world. And so from the earliest pages of Matthew, we see the inclusion of the Gentiles. And so what we have here in these verses is the news that since the towns of Israel had largely rejected Jesus, and now the leadership of Israel had rejected Jesus, Jesus was turning and the day was coming when the primary focus of his ministry would indeed be the Gentiles as the good news goes to them. But on the heels of the rejection of the Pharisees, Jesus and his followers would have been faced with wonders of the legitimacy of Jesus. Was Jesus really God's anointed? If, if the trusted religious leaders, if all the theologians and Bible scholars of our day are denouncing him, and here we see this application of the servant of Israel, or the servant of the Lord from Isaiah applied to Jesus and why it's so important. Here in these words in verse 18, you see the Trinity on display. The Trinity was present in the Old Testament, but hidden largely. Here's where you see the Trinity on display. Look at the verse 18. Who, I will put my spirit on him. Okay, who is the I? Well, who's speaking? That's God. God is speaking. I will put my spirit on him. And who's the him? The, the, the servant. That's Christ. So the Father's here, the Spirit is here, and the Son is here. And what does the Son do? Well, he, he doesn't quarrel or cry aloud in the streets. He's, he's not a ruckus maker. So when the Pharisees oppose him, he's not going to have a he's not going to have a throw down in the streets. He's not going to do an okay corral type type thing. He's gentle, but in his gentleness, he's merciful, and he doesn't break or quench a smoldering wick because he's kind. So Isaiah. In 41.9, mentions the servant for the first time. And in Isaiah 41, that servant is initially understood to be the Israel. But then as you proceed through the servant songs of Isaiah, you see that what was once pictured as the people, it becomes clarified and distilled down to one man. That one man would take away the sins of the people in Isaiah 53. So Jesus is here presented as the Lord's servant, the, the focus of the servant songs of Isaiah. He's the one who's been given dominion in Daniel 7. He's the one who is the Lord of the Sabbath, who provides us the grid through which we understand how the law ought to be applied so what does this mean for us? Brothers and sisters, first and foremost, you have two options. You can come to Jesus and lay your burdens down and take up his yoke. Or you can persist 
in the misguided, errant belief that what you've been doing is good enough. That what you're doing with all of your toiling can merit favor with God. Come to Jesus. Come to him. He's the one who will give you life, who will show you mercy and compassion. He's the one who will take great pains to to not quench or kill when you're weak and frail. Second, Jesus is the Lord of the law. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the one who gets to determine what we are to do. He is the boss of us. So as Christians, understand that Jesus is the one we must obey. He is not just our buddy. He is your king. And the actions of the disciples were legitimized because they were in service to him. So our service to the Lord is what will legitimize our actions. Finally, understand the premise. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Beware against a vengeful, spiteful, uncompassionate rendering of God's law that doesn't take into account the human spirit at all. The Pharisees did that. We are to be characterized by the Lord's said, his loving kindness, his faithfulness. This is what Jesus showed, and they hated him for it. Let us not follow in the steps of the Pharisees. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for sending your son who, to be the Lord of the Sabbath to tear down these artificial edifices that had been constructed around your law that were intended to stifle and oppress and concentrate control and power in the hands of a few. Thank you, Jesus, for showing us that indeed that which is lawful on the Sabbath is life-giving and refreshing. Thank you. Thank you for being God's chosen servant to intercede and mediate for us. Grant that we would be found faithful to you. For Christ's sake we pray it. Amen.